Welcome to The Guardian with Rin Melberg. I'm your host, Harold Nickel. Last week on the podcast, Rin introduced us to SAFE, or the Scaled Agile Framework, as a management tool for aligning people, teams, and tasks that would otherwise likely not be possible. Those folks who work with Agile see benefits that occur inside the business almost right away. But can Agile and SAFE have a similar impact on external audiences? And along those lines, how can it be used to ensure appropriate governance? Well, to help answer those questions and allow us to all wrap our minds around these concepts is our resident expert, Ren the Guardian, Melberg. Okay, Ren, so let's just dive right in. And this is, again, a pretty, a pretty heady topic. Give us, if you could, an overview of just how safe and agile can impact governance. Well, first let's remember that governance is the principles, practices, and processes that protect stakeholder assets. Mm-hmm. And remember that definition of assets, it's anything um, that is necessary for the success of a product or organization or a company. Well, Agile and SAFE do a lot of, around governance just inherently because Agile practices um, have really geared towards reducing risk and increasing predictability. We talked last week about how really honestly when we're doing um, organization or corporate planning, our plans are really only accurate out to about a quarter, so Mm -hmm. three months. Um, And that's really where we get the greatest benefit from um, the built-in governance of Agile and SAFE is because they actually um, increase that degree of predictability uh, within that three-month time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can increase predictability over time at the same time that we're reducing risk. And risk is defined in a lot of different ways. Um, it's risk in terms of meeting our goals, risk in terms of customer appreciation and adoption, uh, risk in terms of things like defects and errors. Um, so it's really looking at all the risk inherent in the work and in our organizations and doing everything you can to reduce and often eliminate that risk. Yeah, it's uh, quite, a, quite a number of chores and issues that, uh, that this can help us all with in our, in our business lives. But I guess from a, from a more practical or even a tactical point of view, are there are there tools or techniques or some other type of know-how that comes from from this overall approach? Yeah, absolutely. From a big point in safe, which is the enterprise level of, of agile, uh, it's aligning an entire organization on 
um, goals and the priorities for that organization. So often uh, the competitiveness and some of the negative behaviors that we see in organizations comes from a lack of alignment. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of studies behind that. Um, as we, we talk about a lot, there's a lot of science. Right behind what I do, and that's part of it. Um, we've got, going all the way back to Peter Drucker in the 50s and 60s, um, hard evidence that a lack of alignment is one of the biggest um, risks in an organization. The other thing we do on a very tactical level, since you said both, uh, <laughs> is at the team level, we only do print, uh, planning in two- or three-week sprints. Um, which reduces the risk significantly. Risk gets reduced to its smallest possible component. Um, and also, that plan is incredibly predictable. And any issues that may arise and put the entire product or program at risk are going to be identified very quickly because we have these tight, short planning windows. Yeah, it it uh, the topic of... I guess coordination, for lack of a better word, or in sync, comes mm-hmm. up a lot, at least uh, as I'm reading about and learning from you more about um, Agile and the enterprise level uh, safe. And it mm-hmm. seems like there's a lot of sharing that necessarily comes of using these tools, sharing across departments between individuals and even entire company boundaries that doing anything that wasn't um, ethical or or even illegal, it would be pretty difficult to to get by with anything like that in an, an open environment like this. Is that a is that a safe conclusion? Uh, yeah, it is. It becomes very difficult. One, the first one I think is important, which is um, we have alignment across these departments and across the entire company in, in a lot of cases on what's important, what the goals are. So we don't have conflicting goals, um, which uh, sort of removes the, the necessity or the opportunity for some of that behavior. The other thing is that because the planning and risk management is done in such an open, transparent, and collaborative way, mm-hmm. again, it just sort of removes the conditions that create some of that behavior, a lot of that behavior. And um, because it's so collaborative, it's very transparent. Yeah. And so it just removes the opportunity or significantly reduces it. And when we think about enterprise planning is done every quarter instead of once a year. Um, team planning is done in two, every two or three weeks. If anything untoward is happening, it's going to be caught a lot quicker than in the traditional method of enterprise planning once a year, team planning once a year. Yeah, it seems like um, the cross-boundary or cross-department meetings, and I think you had described it as the stand-up meetings that uh, mm-hmm. that come, that that would make keeping anything um, in the shadows a lot a lot tougher. Very much so, yes, because you're doing that 15-minute stand-up every day. Right. And when your team members, uh, particularly your scrum master and your product owner, are not seeing progress, 
it's going to raise flags. Right. And it only takes a few days, trust me. I've seen it. <laughs> now, I lived through the quality movement and then um, Six Sigma, and there are those um, in industry and on the Internet who, who are skeptical about Agile and the enterprise level safe and describing it as just the next flavor of the month in terms of management tools. What what do you say about that to people who, who believe that? Um, I totally understand that perspective and also um, am a Six Sigma champion. Um, it kind of amazes me how many letters I have behind my name um, coming through all these different developments. And the biggest thing that I will tell you, the difference between SAFE and TQM and Sigma, Six Sigma, and we can go down the long list, right? Right. Is that SAFE is all about the product, the end product, mm-hmm. and not one of the many components that create that product. Operational efficiency, like Six Sigma, is just one component, one thing that's needed to make a profitable product, but it's not the product. We don't sell... Um, you know, my clients, I can tell you, do not sell <laughs> operational efficiency to their customers. Mm-hmm. They sell them financial services products. They sell them phones, cell phones. They sell them cars, right? They don't sell right. them operational efficiency. Um, TQM or any of the quality uh, processes, again, are, it's only focused on a single component, quality. And quality is always a struggle because it means different things to different people. And when we think of products, even across product lines, it means different things to different people. So not to pick on anybody, but just to be honest, when we buy something at Walmart that's a Walmart brand, we have a very different idea of the quality of that product than if we get a T-shirt that's, you know, made by the Gap. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, right? So quality is in itself um, a very difficult variable, but it's only one variable that creates a product. Where SAFE is actually looking at the entire product, everything that's necessary to take that product to market and manage it, as well as the total life cycle of the product. So yeah, we're going to have this first release of the product, but what's the second release and what's the third release and how are we going to continue to build and grow and develop this product? Right. So it's very different in that respect. Well, and I'm and I'm glad you you cleared that up because it's I think sometimes it's easy to to throw rocks at at any kind of a of a new concept. Now, mm-hmm. I remember that when we talked a couple of weeks ago you used the term willful ignorance when it came to unethical behavior, um, particularly at high levels of, of any organization. In a more open and sharing environment like the one that comes from using this methodology, what kind of, or is that kind of passive-aggressive behavior more difficult to get by with? You know, we have an insider say, saying... Among agileists, and it's like you can't hide in agile uh-huh. because of the uh, collaborative team way we do our work and we plan our work in alignment 
and the like the stand-ups and the short bursts of planning, etc. Um, it doesn't matter where a person's weakness is; mm-hmm. they can't hide it. Right. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we encourage the collaboration. And so, you know, I'm very honest with the teams that I, I coach with. You know, don't come to me and ask me for advice on Java development because I don't know, <laughs> right? And if I pretended to know, it would be exposed very, very, very quickly um, because of this agile process where I can tell you because we've all been there in the more traditional way of doing product development and project management, you can hide ignorance like that for months mm-hmm. and months. Um, and I can oh, I have so many executives and program managers who have nightmare stories about that, where they hired someone who's an expert and they didn't find out, and so they were very heavily invested economically that the person wasn't. Uh, um, that's just not possible in Agile. Um, but what we do is it's also um, part of our Agile manifesto is to always treat everybody with respect. Mm-hmm. So I'm honest, don't hire me as a Java developer. So my clients will never hire me as a Java developer. <laughs> that would set us both up for failure. What I am an expert in is governance and safe. That's what they hire me for. And we look at every single person on a team in the same way. Uh, we're not going to hire a Java developer and expect them to be able to do my job right. either. It would be, uh, I don't know, I guess like hiring your dentist to work on your plumbing. It just It's not going to work. It's, it's a bad fit, work. so don't do it. <laughs> and one of the things we try to really emphasize from the cultural and leadership perspective is let's do everything we can to set people up for success and not failure. Um, so don't ask people to do things that they clearly can't do or don't want to do. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's a good word. And I guess, you know, from from my experience, or at least just in my opinion, it just seems like so many of the laws and the rules around corporate governance at least seem to communicate that there's an assumption that employees are people that you got to keep an eye on. They're lazy, they're greedy, they need to be monitored and controlled from up top. So how does the more open, shared decision-making responsibilities impact those behaviors, and maybe just as important, our beliefs and even prejudices about employees? Well, there's a couple of things there. I mean, we talked about this before, that good governance is not about command and control. Right. Um, Command and control actually takes away um, the, the... treating everybody with respect that's so necessary to have good governance. And command and control actually encourages people to go around the system Mm -hmm. and um, to not report things when they see them and and, uh, to stay under the radar. Um, And so I try to remind my clients, you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. So be careful about what you want to incentivize. Do you, if you incentivize a really strong adherence to a hierarchy, then you're not going to get things bubbling up 
that will um, risks bubbling up that will um, make you a stronger company if you knew about them. You won't find out about defects. I mean, we had that issue at Chrysler uh, a couple years ago, right, where all the engineers knew (laughs) that when they changed vendors for a cheaper part that it created this huge um, problem and people wound up dying because of it. But it didn't bubble up to leadership for a very, very long time. I think it was, wasn't it like six or seven years, something like that? And then when it got to leadership, they had had this going on for so long that they were in a position where in this command and control culture, they even couldn't um, admit that they had made a mistake and rectify it until it basically blew up in the media. Um, and, And that's one of the things that, we go why we have the servant leader model model with agile and safe and how we get improved governance because good governance is everyone's responsibility it's not just the letter of the law if you will but it's the spirit and the intent and are we doing what's right for all of our stakeholders yeah it seems like um had there been that uh level of sharing and and trust that issues like the example you cite with Chrysler would have been taken care of instead of people being afraid to to really say anything. Okay, right. so let's take this from from the other side. If everybody has a stake, and if everybody's in charge, then essentially no one is in charge. So, in this more open environment, who's Who's ultimately held responsible in the workplace for for outcomes, whether they be positive or negative? Well, I don't want to. I want to emphasize actually that Safe, uh, in particular, has very strong built-in roles and responsibilities, and with each of those roles is a set of accountabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, the success of a product is um, the teams. But there are certain decisions within that product that belong to particular roles. So, for instance, if it's about customer experience, the product owner owns that decision um, if the team doesn't come to a consensus. Mm-hmm. When it's a technical solution, the architect owns that when there is not consensus, um, so on and so forth. But the drive is always to first come to consensus um, but there's always in safe, not so much agile, but definitely in the scaled agile framework, there are uh, clear roles and responsibilities and a corresponding set of accountability for each one of those roles. Yeah, that's a good word. And to go back to our plumber dentist analogy, um, the people who have the correct expertise, if I'm understanding you right, are ultimately the folks who are asked to take the lead or to be responsible for things like that. Is is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And we try to be very cognizant of who those experts are. So we have a saying in all Agile that those closest to the problem are the expert. Right. Oh, that's well said. That, right? And, and it's very true. If we think about it, when was that not true? That's always been true. Um, and that's why we trust the teams to solve most of these problems, but we still have, even within an Agile team, areas of expertise, and we need to always respect 
their area of expertise. Absolutely. And along those those same kinds of lines, the governance or corporate governance, at least when I think about it, it it generally means conformity and following a rigorous set of, of rules or policies, setting up control mechanisms, whereas agile is more about adaptation um, and iterative development, realistic planning. How do you reconcile those, or is there some other answer outside of reconciling these two, maybe, you know, where A plus B doesn't always equal C, but some other letter? Can you comment on that? (laughs) Well, even in Agile, though, we do have some standards. So, for instance, um, the Agile team or teams um, rarely decide what their development tool set is. There's an architect who makes that decision across the entire organization or across the enterprise. One of the reasons we do that is because we need that for strong governance. If everybody is on the same development tool set, then it's a lot easier for us to audit um, their work. We can um, integrate their work so much easier. We can use things like continuous integration and automated testing, so on and so forth. All of that actually improves quality and governance across the product and across the enterprise. We also do that because we don't want every team trying to solve a problem they're not being paid to solve. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? It does. Um, So we want them to solve the product problem in front of them. And I've actually had to coach organizations through this where the development teams or the agile teams wanted to decide, you know, what dev tool set we were going to use. And it's like, guys, that's not what you're being paid for. That's not what you're needed to do. Um, So there are controls that are very necessary for Agile teams to be effective. Otherwise, they don't get to the planning around the product, and they literally, swear I've lived through this, mm-hmm. and they don't get to the iterative development because they're spinning their wheels trying to reinvent the wheel. In uh, another part of that is going back to the importance of understanding servant leadership versus command and control when it comes to governance. Good governance doesn't require conformity mm-hmm. because that's all about command and control and people are punching clocks and not doing what they're doing, what they're paid to do. Most of us are not paid to just sit there and punch a clock. Yeah. Right? We're actually paid to be an expert in an area, to be a thinking, creative person and to do what's right for our stakeholders. It's funny that you mentioned punching clocks. I once worked at a place where even the salary workers were required to uh, clock in and clock out. And my belief was that some of the most creative thinking that ever went on at that place were the salaried people figuring out ways to get around the time clock. <laughs> so I think we've all seen situations like that, right? Where um, it... it Management is trying to control things so much and control um, these thinking, feeling people so much that we revert to rebellious teenagers. Absolutely. 
And so often what happens instead of management stepping back and going, wait a minute, are, is this basically what we've created? We've created a bunch of time clock punchers. And that's what we're paying them to do. Is that what we really want? More often than not, what they do is they institute even harsher command and control practices until they basically can't keep or even attract uh, the best talent in their area. Yeah, that's so true. Um, The reverting to the rebellious teenager and the inability to attract the best talent. and frankly, as a salaried person, just making me aware of the fact that, hey, I don't, I don't make any overtime. Um, but anyway, that's uh, I've digressed <laughs> far enough, I think, for uh, for this week at least. So, could you comment on on this statement? Agile governance starts from the very purpose of the organization and aligns the entire organization for the benefit of the whole. It's based on the tenet of requisite alignment in which people and organizations find the best fit for mutual benefit. It's a very academic definition and very correct. I mean, that's really what agile governance is about. And what we've done in SAFE and why SAFE is so popular and why with executives in particular and boards, when they learn SAFE, boards love SAFE, Mm -hmm. um, is because SAFE has codified that at every level of the organization. And um, when we see, and this again going back to um, the business school at MIT and a lot of their uh, incredible studies they did in the 50s and 60s and 70s on organizational health, we know that when organizations are aligned on a goal or a purpose, they're pretty much undefeatable. Mm. And they have been able to accomplish extraordinary things. And one of the things that they studied was actually NASA and uh, the space program to go to the moon and how much they were able to accomplish in a really very short period of time. Um, because what isn't it? Six years? Yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was uh, um, I want to say. But everybody eight, yeah. in the, in, there's a Great book about it, and I wish I could remember the name of it, um, but it talks about how all the way down to the janitors, everybody was aligned on this singular per- purpose, and everybody knew how they fit into this goal of getting to the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even and, even now, if we tried to go back, it would take three times as long as it did back in the 1960s. Right, because we don't have... Um, in the organization necessary to accomplish that, that same singular alignment. And knowing the why behind what we do is an extraordinary um, primal motivator for human beings. If right. we agree with the why, we really are uh, able to accomplish almost anything and everything we put our minds to. Yeah, the the space race and uh the getting to the moon in just a few years is a is a great example of of that kind of alignment. So, mm-hmm. finally Ren, before we before we run out of time, could a company adopt safe strictly as as a tool for governance or does better governance just come as a result of using this tool? I 
There are definitely uh, significant aspects of SAFE that you could adopt strictly for uh, better governance and good governance in your organization. And it's in, you can't separate the good governance from SAFE. So if you adopt SAFE in your organization, you're going to have improved governance. Um, it's just inherent to the program. Um, and especially the work that I do both on the methodology side, so how we do our work, but also what I work with my clients a lot on, which is the leadership behavior and cultural changes that really institutionalize and good governance at all levels of an organization. Yeah, that's so well said. And I can also say that this, is, uh, this has been such a great education um, having the opportunity to talk directly with you. And I hope uh, other folks who are listening to the podcast find it as, uh, as beneficial as I, I certainly have. Now, for those of you who would like to speak directly with Wren, the Guardian, Melberg, about your individual challenges, you can certainly do so. There is a contact form right here on the wrenmelberg.com website. You can just click there. Give her your, your name and your email address, and she will be back in touch with you. And that's going to do it for another week's worth of The Guardian podcast. Be sure and come back with us again next week.